Arms and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamu alaikum. This is Muazzam Mir. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is all about traveling in order to seek sacred Islamic knowledge. We are joined today by two young up-and-coming ustads making waves within their respective communities, Saleh Basir and Momodu Tal. They tell us about their journeys to study the deen away from the comforts of Western life, what their hopes and expectations were, and what they learned through this journey. Welcome everyone. Muazzam Zara, thank you guys for setting this up and privilege and an honor to be here. I was raised in California um, in a small suburb 40, 40 minutes south of San Francisco called Fremont. Um, my my father was Tablighi, so I had, um, I, I would say, a pretty deepened kind of relationship or a deepened upbringing with Islam. I did come from mostly otherwise a pretty militantly secular family. My family came from Hyderabad to Chicago in the 60s. So we, um, we were pretty early, so my mom um, didn't really speak Urdu, and or her that whole Khandan or the whole extended family were not very observant. But because my dad was, mm-hmm. we did have we uh, we we did have a kind of deep upbringing of Islam. When I was seven, we had our first kind of Molana um, in our community. He was he was actually on Tabligh himself, and he came from South Africa. His name was Mona Yassin, and he set up the first Hiv. Madrasa in 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 our town, so that was the first time in the Bay Area that we had a local Hivs Madrasa, and so my brother was sent there. He became Hafiz, and then I was sent there. And um, by then, the original teacher had already left. There were two teachers. Um, one was uh, a Mufti from Deoband, uh, graduated mm-hmm. from Deoband, but did his Mufti course in Hyderabad, a three-year Mufti course, which is um, today it's strange because now people just do a one-year Mufti course, and now they're a Mufti. But back then, it was kind of two, three years. And right. as well as another teacher who um, was originally from England, from an old kind of Indian Gujarati Muslim family, he studied in Gujarat, and then their family ended up moving to, to the Bay Area. And so I did HIVs with them, uh, did my HIVs in a little under two years, and then I did my revision. And um, because I came from a kind of uh, mostly a secular Muslim family, my brother was the first Hafiz in the family, I was the second. Um, we had no ulama. We we don't know of any ulama, you know, vertically or horizontally in our family, stretching six, seven generations. Um, well, er, every everyone's kind of just the the, the typical diaspora immigrant uh, background. They're just engineer, lawyer, physician. I I I was kind of thinking about doing it. But I'm the youngest of five, uh, four of which mm-hmm. did not pursue this. So uh, after I finished his, and I did two years revision after the his. And I was like, um, they had just kind of started like a local alum course. So I did the first year uh, of Arabic. And the first year, as you guys know, was just kind of basic Arabic grammar and the sorts. I had no kind of idea of what it meant to travel, to, to study, because this course had started here um, locally. It was kind of haphazard, makeshift Right. Course. So all this was in San Francisco, uh, whilst you were yeah, still yeah. in San Francisco. Right, right. Mm-hmm. A, a suburb of San Francisco. But yeah, so did, did my heads, all of that here. Um, and 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 as you guys know, there's 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 a kind of intense um, non-Deobandi Hanafi tradition here because we have a, we have the Zaytuna crowd. So Sheikh Hamza, Imam Zaid, 
Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamad Ali, who were, um, you know, like these kind of three brilliant Maliki tra- traditional scholars, but that whole trajectory is going on. So higher studies mm-hmm. um, was, was kind of framed in that sense. So as opposed to areas like Florida or New York, which didn't have um, a different strand of critical um, scholarship. So mm-hmm. for a lot of Bay Area Muslims, going to a Deobandi Madrasa like I did was, was again, so, so even for the small minority of community of, of people who were willing to study and travel, um, traveling to Mauritania and uh, and and uh, and Morocco seemed much more um, seemed better just because of the fact that we had kind of these renowned scholars like Sheikh Hamza, who was a global brand by that point, Imam Zaid. Um, so right, so it was sort of like the in thing, right? Yeah. To, to go to places like uh, Mauritania or Mali, just because um, you know the, like probably the the superstar scholars of your of your um, right. area and of your time were going there, right? Right, exactly, and no, no scholar in America had the same renown that Sheikh Hamza did, and he had studied in Mauritania. So, so, so studying in Mauritania had now this kind of um, added, added uh, renown to it, as opposed to going to a Deobandi Madrasa, because we in America had not produced any scholars uh, with, with the same global platform that Sheikh Hamza did. Right, and right. you know, so, in the, in the, in the so in, at what point did you decide to? At what point did you decide that okay, um, my my Diobandi, um uh, scholarship, um, you know, is not at the same level in the U.S. as um others other um institutes, and um, perhaps I should travel now to to go outside and study. At which point in your life would you say? How old were you when you made yeah, this decision? So I was, I was, I was sixteen. Um, I didn't, I didn't really make that decision. Um, I had a friend who was, who was, who was deeply talking about going to South Africa. I, I didn't even know that they were essentially Madadis in South Africa mm-hmm. or, or kind of well-to-do Madadis or um, uh, intellectually rooted Madadis. And he, he was encouraging it because he was like, Hey, um, I'm kind of sacrificing my life. Um, you know, I'm not going to college. I'm not doing this just to pursue own. And if I'm going to do it, I want to do it properly. And he thought that he wasn't getting the necessary instruction. Um, that was necessary to to be and perform as an alim in in the West. So he 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 had originally thought of going to South Africa and Arab countries like Syria and Egypt were no longer on the radar because the Arab Spring had just started to be an Arabi. So right. um, even so, even if we didn't want a good kind of Hanafi uh, uh, instruction in in a non South Asian setting, um, those opportunities were no longer available to us just because right. of the Arab okay. Spring. Yeah. So it sounds like it sounds like you sort of um, you, you didn't come from a very um, religiously educated background, but because of certain people making a positive impact in your um, yeah. locality, it sort of inspired you towards uh, studying the dean, and then it actually inspired you to travel to study the dean. So um, right. let's right. Let, let's hear from let's hear from Momodu and um, your your experience uh, growing up and what led you upon this path. Um, brilliant. Thank you so much, Professor Salah. That's a very inspiring story, first and foremost. Um, initially, I believe my story is somewhat different in the sense that I didn't grow up necessarily practicing. I didn't grow up necessarily with Islam at the forefront of my mind. I didn't grow up with, um, alhamdulillah, my family are Muslim, being from the Gambia, which is majority Muslim, but it wasn't forced upon me. So I do remember about the age of 16, 17, I had... Um, I actually spent a, like maybe a few months looking to other religions, actually, because I came to a point where I wanted to, I, I did affirm God, but I didn't really know what made sense to me at the time. So I kind of looked into like um, Buddhism and Rastafarianism and uh, from other religions. At the time, the most convincing was Islam in the end, followed by Rastafarianism, actually, personally. Right. And then I thought to myself, okay, let me, let me, start, let me start taking this Islam thing seriously. What does that mean? 
then that meant to me now let's start going to a mosque um being in Birmingham at the time when I was 17 so this must have been up when I was in 2011 right I didn't have access to many mosques that spoke English so the majority of the mosques that spoke majority of mosques were run by the Pakistani community and they spoke and they spoke Urdu so the mosque that did speak English was um uh you know quote unquote a salafi mosque which i had had attended and you know well i like whatever my now disagreements are with many of the aspects of that movement i do appreciate the discipline that it gave me and it helped me establish my five daily prayers which i hadn't used to been praying so after that right. you know long after after i had many questions that were not answered so i came across certain teachers and then we then i adopted the maliki madhab and that was about yeah about 17 18 years old and then from my from my i adopted the the school of medina the maliki madhab i just fell in love with the imam i fell in love with the practice i started falling falling in love with my own roots again as in like okay i'm, I'm from the gambia what is west africa's always maliki uh, majority maliki up until today i later found that i have scholarship in my family uh, there's a scholar called sheikh umar futital who was um who actually you know oh, right. fought against yeah, short fought against the French uh, occupation, and then I found that I had a, I had had he. Married. That must have given you a really strong sense of purpose that I you had um, such a luminary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Then I find that he married the daughter, the granddaughter of uh, Othman Danfodio. So, and at the time, I remember reading Afri- African Caliphate that inspired me as well. I remember that I've got a great uncle called uh, Alpha Hashim Tal, who was the Mufti of, Maliki Mufti of Medina. In the, in the past so I, all these things really opened up to me and I thought okay yeah I've clearly got this in 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 my history and I want to kind of you know mm-hmm. and I want to take, and I want to take this seriously and then I was even actually shocked as well to learn because I've obviously grew up in the UK with like a Diabandi, Bravi, the split and stuff and I, I never really understood it or got involved right then I kind of found I found correspondence between my great-grandfather uh Umar Forty Tal and then Af- Ashraf Ali Tanvi as well I find correspondence oh, between okay. the two and I find it very interesting. Like, okay, so I've even got a connection to that in some way. So lo and behold, I thought to myself, okay, where am I going to study? That was, I, I, I'm, I love fiqh. Everyone, people who know me up until now, I have a deep passion for fiqh. So I thought to myself, where am I going to find, uh, where am I going to be able to study fiqh full time? As a Maliki, the options would be Morocco, Mauritania, or Egypt. So I thought to myself, okay, Mauritania seems too difficult as much as um, people tend to romanticize and, and, and romanticize the idea of studying in Mauritania. It does seem quite difficult. And I thought, yeah, if I'm going to go, let me, let me ease myself into it. Morocco, I felt, was too close to the UK. And I felt like if I have any issues, I'll just end up, and I want to call it quits, I'll end up calling it quits and coming back to the UK. And then finally, right. I thought Egypt is a good balance between that. It's, it's not as um, underdeveloped as Mauritania, but it's not as close as Morocco. So I decided to go to Egypt. I completed um, parts of the Azhar High School, and then I com- was studying and completed many parts of the, or they call it the Ruwak al-Azhar, which is the traditional section of studying Sharia in Al-Azhar Mosque. And alongside that, I now met my teacher, who's Sheikh Zahir, who's a, a legend in Maliki Fiqh, a young scholar who's actually, well, he's memorized most of the texts, and I study full-time with him now as well, in Markaz Imam Malik in Cairo. Right. So I've I've actually picked out something really interesting in, in both your stories, because um, it seems like you're both um, you know, children of the diaspora. But yeah. um, it seems like, I mean, on on your on your sort of travels or on your journey to um, learn the deen and, you know, to, to reclaim the deen, especially in matters of fiqh, it, it seemed like you were you were m- most interested in studying um, what your ancestors would have or perhaps what 
the generations previous to you would have been practicing rather than what was um you know currently in your locale so for for instance with Saleh um you did mention that there were many great maliki uh, teachers in um in and around the the area that you were living but you decided to um pursue the hanafi school and you had to travel to to um to a land that you could study the hanafi uh, school with and in with momodus case it's actually almost completely inverted because um where you were from in the uk um majority of the mosques you said in in birmingham were were um uh, Pakistani mosque, so I'm assuming yeah. they were majority Hanafi, and then you decided, okay, my well, my my ancestors were all Maliki, and there were all these great Maliki luminaries in my um, you know in my family tree. So let me let me now leave to to go and sort of reclaim my Maliki heritage. So w- what is it about? Do you do you feel that it's somewhat necessary for like a child of the diaspora to um, try and find the the school that was. Um, you could say their ancestral school. Do you do you feel like this is you know necessary in any way, or why why did you feel that you guys had the, you guys needed to um, to study these schools in particular and not the ones that were available to you? You could say in your in your locality. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think I think for me it was just a matter of 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 what made the most sense. You know, like most of my family is Hanafi. I mean, even if they're not necessarily practicing or but the the idea that the, the mud hub trickles down into the culture is definitely a rooted thing right that like in south asia mm-hmm. you can see traces of the hanafi mud hub in the culture in afghanistan and uzbekistan the hanifa's ideology has kind of seeped into the culture the same way with the with the shafi mud hub in the arab world or the maliki mud hub in west africa or formerly in spain so um there there is no doubt and so and so for me now to go study another mud hub and then to even now push back to, to, to push back even against like the LCD, like the lowest common denominator between us, didn't really make sense. Again, the local community of scholars that I engage with, um, either Jamaat or otherwise, were all mostly Hanafi. My, my most immediate his teachers were Hanafi, so it just it, it just it just seemed a lot like a lot of tekalof to to kind of go out of my way. I mean, pe- people have done it. I, I mean, I know I know Afghan mm-hmm. who have become Maliki, but like. It, it, like I don't think it made sense to me. It's not necessarily that I had any deep knowledge of Edmund Madhab to make that decision. It was just, I guess, ease and and what made what made the most sense from a cultural perspective. You could say sure, c- cultural, but also like sociological, right? Sociological. What about you, Momo? Uh, mine, mine was actually um, a part of that because I like to learn. I learned to learn about my like my history, but initially it was just because I had met a guy in school. And he mm-hmm. was, I remember, I remember, as I said, I started practicing. So this, this was going to be my first Ramadan fasting. So he said to me, okay, since we're not fasting, <clears throat> since we're not praying, since we're not uh, eating at lunchtime, do you want to pray in school? I said, yeah, of course, let's pray. And then he started, he prayed with Sadal, which is praying with the hands by the sides. And I was very intrigued mm-hmm. by this. And I said, what are you, what's that? And he, and he said, when he said the salam at the end of the prayer, he only said, assalamu alaikum once. So I said, I was very, quite intrigued and I inquired. And he goes, oh, I do this because I'm a Maliki. I said, okay. So I said, okay, okay. I said, no, tell me more about this Maliki stuff. And he goes, I bet you're Maliki too. And I was like, okay, I don't know. I don't know what that means exactly. I just know I'm a Muslim. And then mm-hmm. he, I, and I went home and then I asked my, uh, my, my stepfather and I was like, oh, what are we? He goes, oh, we're Maliki. And I was like, oh, okay, that's something new now. So then that's how I got. And then after that, it opened up for me. Then it opened up. Then I, right. I, remember, I, remember, I remember being on Wikipedia and just Googling uh, the Maliki Matab and it shows you all the green of like, North and West Africa. I was like, okay, so my people were Maliki for some time. Then I learned about how it went, how it spread into Africa, and how it and how it was accepted by the African uh, leaders. 
Right. So you also probably had because you you mentioned earlier on that the um it was it was sort of difficult to probably even seek knowledge in the UK at the time because I mean um majority of the mosques were Urdu speaking, right? So you probably you probably also had that sociological slash you know cultural um b- barrier that would have just made you like as Saleh mentioned you know go out of your way a little bit more than than you probably had to. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the thing is naturally. When I would go to a lot of, I don't, I know this is not a topic of this of discussion, but when I would go to like Pakistani mosques sometimes, or you know, they're just, I can't, I mean, I've, everyone knows I'm very vocal on this point. The racism that I would mm-hmm. face in some of these masajid, that I would be so awful right. of going, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go there. If if it's not someone telling me they want to teach me how to do wudu, it'll be someone um, putting a hat on my head in prayer, or whatever it may be. So I can so you know you you kind of off put it to go to these places anyways, but I still want to have connection to Islam. Right, right. So um, I have a I have an, uh, uh, the next question here. Um, I think Momodu, you did mention um, Egypt, and I, I know yeah. Saleh, you mentioned um, you mentioned South Africa, but I wanted to know in particular what is it about the institute that you um, particularly? I'm I'm quite intrigued um, about Saleh because I know Momodu mentioned okay Egypt vis a vis Morocco vis a vis, but like um, I do know that. If you wanted to study at a Dioband, um, you know, institute, I mean, the subcontinent was was still open. You know, it was unaffected by the you know Arab Spring around that time. So, I mean, what what made you um, inspired towards South Africa? Because a lot of people don't actually know, but South Africa is an incredible place to study. Like Cape Town, um, and you know, other other parts. I think you were in Azadville, right? Um, you, you're. Could you tell us a bit more about your institute, and then Momo can tell us a bit more about Azhar. South Africa obviously is this kind of um, blind spot in the Ummah in terms of just like Al. And uh, <laughs> for me, again, I, I obviously knew very little about the Madaris in South Africa. Um, knew a little bit more about India, Pakistan, but I think um, our teachers. And so we had we had a couple, a batch of recent graduates, the kind of first Bay Area uh, Muslims to go and study in Azadville and who came back. They were born and raised um, in it in America and they came back and, and uh, they served as some of our, of our teachers in that first year of our Alam program. And we enjoyed their knowledge and they, they deeply recommended their mother's stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. they, they said that, look, Hey, like if you go to India, Pakistan, like it's going to be difficult. Like you're like any of those Western privileges that you, that, that you think that, um, or that, that you live in right now, like you're definitely not going to have when you go to India, Pakistan in South Africa, it's still not going to be the same as the Bay area, but it's, they do take the fact that you come from a Western country and you expect a certain level of comfort, like heaters or running water, you know, because oh, right. even, okay. even that, even that can be in jeopardy in India, Pakistan. Plus um, the teachers are a little bit more understanding that kids who come from Western countries are raised in a different background. So um, yeah, it was just, and, and again, not that I knew much about the Madaris there, but just for whatever reason, we had students who went specifically to Azadville, came back to the Bay Area and could recommend that mother stuff to us. So just purely based off recommendation, yeah. Right, recommendations, and then also there's that there's that aspect of um, ease and comfort. And I know, Momo, do you um, particularly, like on Instagram, do tend to talk about um, a lot of the problems that you face in Egypt in terms of like administration and yeah could you tell us a little bit about Egypt and about Azhar in general and um you know what why you chose Azhar and your experience has what your experience has been like with Azhar um I uh first of all I remember when I was going off to study I I called Imam Saheb Webb and I asked him Mm -hmm. about Egypt and what to do and his two uh, his his what he said to me then has still rings true to me and it's like been my mantra he said to me um lower your ex- have patience and lower expectations 
and that has kept, mm. that has that has been able to keep me going through all this time, literally, because it's Egypt is, you know, they call it in Arabic Umud Dunya, yeah, the mother of the world. And in many ways, you know, mm-hmm. all the all the all the scholars that are buried there, all the people that have gone to Azhar, you know, from the greatest giants like Imam Shafi'i is buried there, Imam Jaldin Siyuti, you know, so many of these great scholars of this Ummah have gone through Egypt. Um, but it comes with a lot of stress. Because Azhar, for example, so Azhar as a as an institute is set up in two um, several ways. It's got the high school, which everyone has to go through, and then mm-hmm. then you go to the university, which is like um, which is like any other university in the sense that you have modules, you have I think three anything between three to six modules a year. You're tested on the modules in the in the winter and in the summer. After four years, you're given a degree in the, in Sharia. Alternatively, you could do the MOS program, which is also three to four years, and then you don't get a degree, but you get an ijaza. The mosque program is a bit. Right. It's seen a bit more traditional because you, you sit at the, the, the you sit at the um, the feet of scholars, for example, and go through books cover to cover more more often than not. Whereas in the university, you you have modules and you go through certain specific things. Both are great. Um, it depends what you really want. I've personally had many issues going trying to get into the university, so I didn't. I opted for the mosque group. Mm-hmm. Um, but administration is terrible <laughs> honestly like literally it's 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 i can't even i'm getting flashbacks right now of how many like, <laughs> having to like feel like the most the most mundane of tasks will take you maybe a week to do like if, if you got to get a signature for something or get your visa oh, subhanallah take you you come here ta'al bukra come tomorrow come tomorrow come tomorrow come tomorrow and then you just i don't know i feel they really get it really beats you out of you so it's it's a bit of a nafs breaker if oh, in, in, in some sense yeah 100% you know especially coming from the west maybe if you're if you were a local or from those types mm-hmm. of places in the world you'll be used to it used to okay things not working things not going your way but you know being in the west and having western privilege you used to order an organization and when things are supposed to happen on a certain day they happen that day but in right. in uh, in Egypt that's not the case at all so i mean you guys have both mentioned you know worries about um comfort level and stuff like that so can you guys tell me like did you ever have any like doubts or misgivings before you left i i would say that i that i i definitely did have misgivings and kind of family warned me and said that hey like it's not going to be it's not going to be like your typical high school in america or, or university it's going to be something totally different but right. uh, because i because, but because i knew two or three people from uh, my class who were coming with me i was i wasn't as uh i wasn't as apprehensive about it as someone who was probably just going alone and by themselves i'm sure that i'm sure that would be a much more frightening experience right i can imagine um so yeah, at least you had somebody like to be in the same boat with and you know to go through the right. same stress uh, with right. as well yeah what about you um Mustad momo um before going uh, no, nah, I think I was I was really excited, man. I didn't really know I didn't know anyone in Egypt. I had been in contact with one person prior who's going to be my roommate, but I really <laughs> threw myself in the deep end. I mean, I arrived in Egypt in August of 2015, I believe, or end of 2015, and then I didn't know any Arabic. I didn't know anything. Um, but then, oh wow, yeah, yeah. I went in the deep end, and my um my roommate who was from America, I arrived on like a Tuesday, and he had left the week after. So he left me. Mm-hmm. No one. I didn't know anyone in the country. I didn't know any Arabic, and no one speaks English there. I just kind of got on with it. Naturally, I got sick quite early on in the first two weeks. That's what, that was the only time I thought, "Oh, already I'm sick. I don't. I can't communicate with anybody. I don't know how to get any medicine." So I that felt like okay, maybe I could kind of call this quits. But other than that, I was really excited. 
Well, so you so you felt sick, and um, you were literally by yourself in um, yeah, in 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 Cairo, yeah, and you you couldn't speak any any Arabic. So how I mean how how I really want to know how did you get about how did you get about that? Like, did you just um self recover or? Yeah, I just self recovered in my you know <laughs> I used like my mom's old res- old remedies that God knows, <laughs> I, I love her alum if they work, but I <laughs> just literally just in my room and. You know, but it, that 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 was really tough because I was two weeks by yourself, can't communicate to anybody, and I'm like, okay, let me just get better. Let me just get better. I remember in bed, like almost not unbeing able to move, unable to move, and I just like started googling flights back home. Just oh, oh subhanallah. <laughs> what about you, Maulana Saleh? Like, I mean, what was what was your like your first reaction when you got there? Like, did you have any um, misadventures as well, or uh, did it start off smooth? Or yeah, no, I mean, I I just remember landing in the airport is right after the World Cup. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, it was, there was like that post world cup hangover going on in the country, uh, ah, yes. which, which itself was a weird mood, but yeah, no, I remember it came to the airport airport was obviously kind of different from what I expected landed. Uh, they had this, something called a Nazim from the, from Nazim in Arabic, but they're just kind of like these administrators. So he came and picked me up and I remember driving through and, uh, it slowly started to settle in because again, it was a country that I had never seen before. I was used to a very certain lifestyle in America. Um, and then I ended up in the mother set and this was right. I came a little bit early because I wanted to adjust myself before classes started. So I came right, to the right. So right after Eid, before classes started. So there are not that many people in the mother set. They were just mostly kids who didn't go home even during Ramadan. So a lot of like Malaysian mm-hmm. and Thai kids and they were all in the basement. So they kind of just put us in the basement and I think that's when it hit me because it was just, it was, it was like, here's like a hundred kids. Here's like a small cot, <laughs> sleep here. Um, you know, so, like what surprised you the most out of like, out of all these experiences? Like what, what was the, the thing that happened to you? And you were like, oh my God, I did not expect this. For me, for me, for me, it was the bathroom. It was like a toilet in the ground. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> oh, what about you, Ustad Momo? Like, I mean, you you did mention that you know, like, um, Egypt is like um, the mother of the world, and I mean, I I from what I I've been to Egypt, and I yeah. what I can tell you is it's one hectic place. So, what was it like being a, a young man from the UK from Birmingham, and then suddenly you're in Cairo, and you've mentioned that you couldn't speak any Arabic. So, I, I want to know, like, what was your first like um your first few months like when you were when you started at the Azhar? I mean, initially, I just started studying Arabic. So that was like the first year and a bit, just just purely Arabic, purely Arabic, purely Arabic. And then when we went to the high school, it was literally, um, it was okay. It was okay. It was like maybe 30, no, about 30, 40, 50, 40 of us in a class. Um, again, mm-hmm. it, it, was feeling, it, was, it was a bit like being in a prison because they lock you in <laughs> from eight to one. And then you're in a class with like, so I, I must have been what, 23 at the time. I'm in a class with maybe 13 year olds as well. Like, and, and they are kids. So it felt like going back to school again. It must have felt like you're, you're in school, but yeah, the, the difference is it's in a different language, a different culture. Like everything is different, but you're, you're back in school. Yeah, with like younger people. Back in school, younger people. It's, they're locking in from eight to one. They're very strict on, on attendance. So I thought, okay, wow, I'm really back in school. I haven't lived like this in, in several years. But like, what, what, what misconceptions then did you, did you, do you think you, you guys must have traveled with when you um because you you did mention like oh you were surprised about x and y and you know the, the toilets in the ground and so what what were you like what were you expecting and then what 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 did you expect this like journey to be like one thing i always hear about like almost the stereotype from people you know traveling from the west is oh well, i'm going to go to this you know muslim land and everything is going to be so you know foreign and exotic and then i'm going to like you know 
climb up into a cave and there's going to be a teacher there and he's going to look <laughs> into my soul and and like oh, he's going to have these these you know this like this jedi master moment yeah. and then you you actually land there and like the, the situation on the ground is like so different so like what what misconceptions did you guys have um let's start with you molana in south africa so i i thought and because it was a day when the mother saw i thought i was going to go learn the language of revelation arabic and i show up and i'm learning urdu Oh. <laughs> so and you know my my parents certainly speak Urdu nor does my family so it, it like Urdu was as new of a language as as Arabic is and mm-hmm. I I was I was so confused because I was just like why am I spending all this time learning Urdu and you know like what does it have to do with Islam and I I understood I I understand the reason now and the benefit and the utility of knowing Urdu especially as a Hanafi living in post modernity but mm-hmm. uh yeah when I'm like 16 years old in South Africa who comes from this kind of secular family you know what does it mean to why why am i learning urdu if i'm trying to study islam and i think i think that was like the biggest uh uh, uh misconception for me and other people who asked me about mother said they were just like you know like like why are you studying urdu like the process why are you studying urdu, urdu? Yeah. yeah you know like not even in dreams that you speak urdu so why why is urdu being taught as as an islamic islamic or islamicate language What about you um Sidi Mohamedou Ustad? Um misconceptions. I kind of maybe thought Egypt as a country might have been a bit more stricter than it actually is if that makes sense. In um, in terms of like stricter in terms of practice. Yeah. Like religious maybe, practice. Yeah, maybe a bit more stricter but they're very I mean they're very chill. You have the malls there. You have you have the new areas of Cairo which are very like it's like it's almost as if you're they're trying to imitate being in the west for example. What I did notice, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a misconception. What I did notice, though, there's a direct correlation between uh, wealth and re- religiosity. So, for uh-huh. example, you find in the poorer areas, there's you're more likely to see women wearing hijab, for example. By religiosity, I mean outward religiosity, anyway. For example, in poorer areas, women wear hijab. People maybe wear more often and not wear thobes. When the adhan goes off, people go to the masjid. For example, I remember being in Ramadan. I've been. I was in a. I was in a, um, a quite a wealthy area. The adhan went off for fajr. People were still eating. No one went to the mosque. Um, women were not wearing hijab again. It's not to judge them or anything. Just that. Oh, I, was, I noticed that very apparent. And even now, in my interactions with people who are who are uh, wealthier in Cairo, they speak. They speak English. They have no interest. They, when they, they're surprised that someone will come from the UK. Yeah, I was just about to ask that yeah, because yeah. I mean you've come from they, they think oh this person's come from the west they must be like really rich and like enjoying yeah. life so why would they come here to you know study the deen yeah, so you get, you probably got that as well they get very surprised they're like why would you come and study in Azhar when you're from the UK why would you study Islam Islam is even your just in your heart um mm-hmm. and yeah so you, I got that a lot and for them cause for them the pinnacle of civilization and 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 high culture is the west and they see Egypt as very backwards they see Islam as very backwards as well What about you like um Ustad Saleh like I mean when you're from what I gathered from you're living in this madrasa like you you seem to have been sort of isolated from um the rest of South African um you know s- culture and stuff but did you have any um interactions with people who must have been you know from South Africa wondering oh wow you've come all the way from you know um the US from California and you're here in South Africa and you know like why are you studying the deen like did you ever or perhaps maybe even from other people did you ever did you ever get this when you had embarked on your studies yeah no absolutely i mean first i got it from my family from my own family who lived here my grandmother's brother was kind of like he he was so he was so confused he was like you know we came here in the 60s to to give these kids like a good secular education why is he throwing it all the way to become a molana only like the poor 
the poor, uneducated, kind of talentless people go and study dean. At least, like that's that's how it is now in Islamic societies. But um, and so in in South Africa, it's a little bit different. Um, the wealthy Muslims are some of the most religious ones. Um, just because oh. the, just just because of the nature of the of the diaspora there, they're fifth sixth generation Indian Gujarati mostly. Um, there are also mm-hmm. Malays in in Cape Town, but uh, I was in I was near Johannesburg, and uh, because there there was already a large uh, diaspora of British Muslims who have been who had been studying in South Africa, it wasn't as near um, shocking to them. But because they were already extremely extremely wealthy Muslims, like I'm talking about, like the top one percent um, socioeconomically, were the were were the most religious, right? Like beard, like fist length beards, uh, pants above their ankles. Prayer at the masjid three to five times a day, three three times minimum. So for them to see someone with oh, that's that's a really interesting um, uh, distinction then between um, you know South yeah. Africa and, and Egypt. This is pretty interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so what did so, mm-hmm. so so yeah, so like the people that you saw in the first stuff were you know millionaires and stuff like that. Yeah. So for them to see someone leaving America to, to come to South Africa, it was shocking because obviously two hundred years of colonialism does create a certain ontology, but. Uh, it's 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 but still because they had already made that sacrifice of sacrificing the dunya and being involved with dean for them to see someone else do it wasn't as surprising to them well but i i can imagine it must have been a bit of a culture shock to you as well because from what it seems you've you've been growing up and like i mean even your your family has grown up thinking okay we need to like you know um through forget about all this um molana stuff it's for, it's for the poor untalented people and we need to become you know we need to have like um professionals in our family and we need to do xyz in terms of our secular education and now suddenly you've come to a new land where you've seen okay all these people are uh, you know wealthy in terms of material material wealth and they're the millionaires but at the same time they're also you know the religious people and, and the molanas and it must have been like um reassuring in some sort of way for your family as well yeah yeah no absolutely i mean like it showed that like hey like it's not either dean or dunya they're not mutually exclusive but i think it was also a little bit different for me i know than as opposed to a muslim who came from new york um because in the bay mm-hmm. area if it, 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 it's a self-selecting pool if you're coming to the bay area that means that you probably have a tech background you're you're part of the silicon valley uh, uh, white collar, uh, you know, uh, culture. So, so you have already made it, and 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 so and so a lot of the subliges and deobandis in the Bay Area are already people of of wealth. So it, it wasn't that um, upending for me, uh, but it there there definitely was a certain shock of you know seeing the most wealthy Muslims as the most religious of of society. Right. So we have spoken a little bit about now that like this culture shock with the people. Uh, of the land and like the culture shock regarding the institutes. So I want to know a little bit more about the scholars that you guys, you know, that you guys studied with. Did you did you ever feel that there were any cultural differences between you guys who are like you know young Muslims from the West and the scholars you encountered in this land? And then did it did it ever make it difficult for you? Like this this part of the question is really important. Like could you connect with them well and explain the needs of like the people in your local communities? Yes and no. I feel like being around the Azhari Shuyukh and Mashayikh they are very open-minded and very in tune with what the West is, of the West as well. And a lot of this, so I mean, I think over several years and decades of having students come from the West, they're very in tune with that. Um, On a personal note, I I have, however, on the flip side, have had some personal teachers who I love them to bits, but their views are really like, uh, it's backwards the right to say, but it's, I wouldn't say backwards, but it's like very limiting 
Like, for example, some mm-hmm. of them, particularly maybe the way they view women, for example. And in, uh, initially, it was very tough to, to, to hear that. Someone who's very traditionally well-grounded, having certain views, and you, you know, I was taken quite aback by it. But in the end, I just kind of realized, okay, this, this is the way the person sees things. And I'm not here to convince them of my worldview and they have a completely different worldview to me. Similarly as well, I've had teachers who, again, who I've got nothing but, but, um, but uh, love and respect for. But when I would bring up issues of, for example, racism within the tradition, for example, when I would bring up anti-blackness within t- t- the tradition, when you have, you know, for example, just, just to pull an example, you have scholars who say the, the mahar, the dowry of a black woman is less because she's ugly. But when I would mm-hmm. bring that to certain mashayikh, because they, they don't understand the, the anti-blackness within, you know, Western society, for example, they would say, oh, the scholar doesn't mean that it meant this. It didn't mean that or trying to justify what the scholar meant. So, you know, it was a quite a tough pill to swallow when someone you respect doesn't see things, you, doesn't see things uh, the way you see things that you're, and you're so passionate about. But I realized separ- I, sep- I, I realize to separate, okay, I get fiqh from this person. I don't get their worldview. I don't get their politics. I don't get their understanding of how the world works. So, I mean, on this point of, of worldview, though, do you feel like um, you must have, um, I mean, w- regarding anything, though, did you feel like you must have come to the... Um, to you know, to study the dean with these scholars with certain worldviews that you felt like perhaps okay, you you carried some baggage with you from the land that you came from 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 the UK and that you probably realized okay, I need to shed the this kind of baggage now, um, just by in, in, mm-hmm. but but not so much baggage. I mean, the thing is, what we learn in in fiqh, we learn you know al orf muhkam like the the culture and context of a people is, is taken into consideration when you're given religious rulings and naturally as well mm-hmm. and someone giving a religious ruling in a particular area is more deserving of giving a fatwa and religious edict than someone who's not from that area so so that is right. very important to if you're going if i'm going to give a religious ruling in the uk i need to know what the uk is like you know so I, naturally we all have baggage but it's also you carry this with you and, and it helps you somewhat filter your understanding of what you're learning Right. What What about you, um, Maulana Saleh? What was your like relationships with when with with, with the scholars that you um, that that you met uh, along your travels? Yeah. So I I actually had a journey with that um, a little a little bit different than Saleh, uh, but um, I I I I came in obviously coming from you know this completely father and then everyone else kind of secular and, and kind of understanding the the criticisms that either liberal Muslims had or secular Muslims had of Islam. And that was always like the mainstay of, of my focus when I did fiqh or surah al-fiqh or surah al-hadith or tafsir or, or mantiq even. And, you know, it was all, like I was always thinking about like why, what does it mean to own your body? Right? Like, like what does it mean? For, and and I'm, not, I'm not saying that I, that, I, that, I, that, that I was able to articulate these questions well. I was only able to think about this stuff after I went to college and kind of did post-colonial theory to, 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 to frame it better. But yeah, uh-huh. I mean, when I when I when I when I first went there, I remember um, our, our our principal he he said um, or or someone else said that um, you know women shouldn't work, and for me for me for me that was tough because my mom um, she she had gone through an incredible struggle to start wearing hijab. She didn't come from a family where women wear hijab. She was the first woman again um, of of generations to start wearing hijab, and so for her and and, and you know she was college educated. She was an, she was an IT engineer, and and then. You know, when he told me that like women shouldn't work, I was just like, why? You know, and or or you know, like like some of the other stuff, and to say that like in the Hanif Madhab, because this 18th century Syrian Muslim gave fatwa that niqab is now mm-hmm. wajib. Now now 
without without looking at the the fiqh of that, it's just like how do I as an eighteen year old kid now go home and tell my mom who is how do you contextualize the whole thing? Right, yeah, and like, or just like the fact that like she has gone through so much to wearing hijab, and 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 to tell her that like if she doesn't wear niqab, then she could be kind of liable for for adab, you know, or something like that. And for me, for me, that was really tough. Um, in in the beginning, and I actually became known, regrettably so, for like asking like the liberal questions in class. You know, when we do like oh okay, a, or like like a substantive legal ruling, I would be the only one to to raise my hand and be like, wait, like why is it so um re like either like feminist arguments or um really really like some of the more common millennial muslim that 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 they have against islam or stuff like that and you know and and this is deep into my alam course fourth fifth year uh where Mm -hmm. i would still be asking those questions but um i i only learned after when i when i when i went back to college and kind of understood how secularism and liberalism operates on an epistemological level and how it kind of structures Mm -hmm. ideas that a lot of those questions were misguided um, that I had in the first place, and that we have to first, first we have to understand how the Sharia operates on an ethical, on a substantive level, how it works, how it operates sociologically, anthropologically, legally, theologically. Like we can't just come in and ask the super secular question with all of its baggage and then try to transpose that onto Islam. That's 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 inauthentic, that's ingenuine, and that's violent toward the Sharia, and that's no different to what the British did in India and the French did in Algeria, and we and we know this. From, from historical and archival documents. But um, for me, I just, again, with my teachers, I actually really love my teachers. Um, most mm-hmm. of them, there were, there were a couple. Um, there were a couple teachers who, because of American foreign policy, they blamed American students as if somehow we were responsible. There were like one or two. And, oh, man. Um, they, 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 so you, you feel like you, you suffered biases um, as, as an American student? But but again again that too like I would be I would uh, I would be lying if I said that that was the norm it was kind of a very like one percent or two percent of the teachers majority of the teachers um, treated me beautifully and I'm 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 so thankful you know and you know going going to a private school in America like a private college and then seeing uh, like like I, I would still say that my teachers in Azadville um, nothing really rivaled them in terms of just like the pure concern and uh, investments they had in us like I had this one teacher Hafidahullah um, Taala. Who um he he was kind of like the the second mufti um in command of our madrasa and he was such a great usuli but also mm-hmm. um I would I would just go up to him everything and, and and he was such a brilliant scholar but he would he would he would any student who came up to him he would discuss them he would give all his time I mean he had a family you know madrasa in Azadah runs from seven a.m. To, to almost seven to eight p.m. sometimes. So despite all of that, you know, after Zuhr, after Asr, the hour gap in between, he would give his time. And so for me, I was really, really blessed to, to kind of attach myself to him. And, and, and he gave me so much time in terms of Arabic and fiqh and guiding me what to do and what not to do. And really, I, I'm, 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 I'm truly grateful to, to have him. And, and even in, um, our, our teachers, I think, I think, um, for the most part, were, were incredibly welcoming, had incredible akhlaq. Um, we're just, so invested in in a way that a secular university professor isn't with the exception of maybe like a thesis advisor if you're doing a phd that's a little bit different but here it was just like why why should this teacher when there's 800 students here be so invested in me and give me two three hours a day outside of class and so i'm i'm i'm, I'm always kind of humbled by that and i'm really thankful that i chose azadbo because they had the kind of deep level scholarship as well as the kind of really deep concern and con- Care, like the academic care and concern for their students. Right. I think, um, Osama I, I think whoever follows you on Instagram also knows that you probably also, you also have, um, a sort of like a, a mentor, Sheikh, um, in this regard as well, Sheikh Zuhair. And you do mention yeah, that he, 
Yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about the stuff he does? Absolutely love Sheikh Zahar, man. He's someone that is, where do I start? He's, all his life he's been studying Elm. He is a very, um, he's very strong in the Maliki Matab as opposed, and, and, and Ashari Aqeedah, as well as, um, Usul as well. Um, he memorized several of them all too. And, and I feel like the relationship that we have with him and he's been able to have with us is very one of that. He always has time for us, for example. Like I can come to him with any question at any time and he would be ready to speak to us sometimes, uh, uh, as um, Sheikh Saleh said as well, outside of class time as well. So for example, with Sheikh Zahir now, he has a markaz in Egypt called Markaz in Mamalik. And we study from when when it was intense, for example, we did we did one intensive recently, which was <laughs> from you might have saw it on Facebook. It was like a three week intensive, twenty days, and we finished we finished a couple of books, and literally we so we would sleep about midnight. He'll get us up mm-hmm. from five, um, and then from and we all pray fajr about five forty five. Then about six mm-hmm. or eight, we're memorizing Quran. Then we have breakfast from eight to eight for eight to eight thirty. Then from eight thirty to twelve thirty, he's teaching nonstop four hours, nonstop four, four hours teaching. And then we have a break from twelve. We have a qaylula and nap from twelve thirty to three. We pray asr at three, and then from three thirty to seven thirty, he's teaching again. Then we have break for dinner, and then from ten till midnight, he taught us nonstop. And that's for twenty. Wow, subhanallah. Back. Wow. That's twenty back. So in that time, we memorized kutub with him, a few books with him. We went. Um, we asked any questions and I was I was tired from just listening I was wondering how how he didn't get tired from teaching us all this time and he was the one coming oh, to wake subhanallah. Up. he was the one coming to wake us up for every salah as well every fajr his first one up waking up for fajr so it was you know it was intense and besides that normally when it's not that intensive we study with him from Dhuhr to about Isha so for about 12 to about 8 five days a week Wow, subhanAllah. It's so different from the relationship that you ha- you tend to have with like university professors yeah. that when like, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when your two-hour lecture is up, like, I mean, they might be just mid-sentence and they're wrapping up and, 100%. and they're leaving. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also like, you know, the office hours, like you, if you don't catch me in, my, in, my, in the one hour office hour that I have, like, I mean, I'll see you next week, maybe. Write me so, an like, email. <laughs> write yeah, me an write email, me email, yeah. What about you, um, Ustad Saleh? Like, I mean, I, I've heard like so much about how intensive, um, you know, s- studying the deen can be, especially when you're doing it full time. Like, could you tell us a bit about like the, your, your more grueling, um, your more grueling experiences? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, coming coming from a public school in America, where uh, you know you study for you know five six hours a day max to a mother's cell, where you're doing sometimes ten eleven hours of class, plus um, in in South African mothers, we have roll call after namaz. So, mm-hmm. um, so after Fajr, we would have roll call. After Asr, we would have roll call. After Isha, sometimes we would have roll call. So, um, there's like that element um, of that too. So it's not it's not um, they they have the roll call in the masjid, so you have to be um, in the masjid, so you can't be late to jamaat. Uh, but also, yeah, I mean, just 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 the pure rigor that that Ustad Mamadou um, was was talking about. You know, kind of for us, we would have Fajr at five five thirty. We have roll call, then we have a series of du'as. We have some mandatory zikr. And mind you, this is like all 600, 700 students of the mother wow, doing this together. And, and that this, this would happen seven days a week, right? And we have, and then we have roll call <laughs> for 20 minutes. So we have certain people who take the roll call of the entire mother every single day. And then and then we have about an hour-ish break for breakfast and you know, just to kind of walk around well, because South Africa. Well, I really need to know, like, your top tip about like how you manage to to like stay to stay, you know, grounded and not like lose your mind in like the first um, the first three days of this. I mean, I I can imagine like it's so intense. Like, how how did you even like you know you know stay sane? Like, w- w- did you have any off time at all? 
So we, um, the, the only real off time is after Zuhur, the Qaylula, but it's not really off time because you have, because you have to sleep. If you don't sleep during Qaylula, you, you're going to fall asleep in class before, um, before Asr or, or after Maghrib. So like that Qaylula, so there's like an hour there. Plus, um, after Asr, you get an hour. And then after Isha, by nine, we get out by nine, nine thirty, and then nine thirty to eleven or night lights off. So you do get three to five hours, but it's 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 actually really interesting that like after a while you just become used to it, and um, because yeah. at least for me for the four years I didn't have a phone or any social media, so I had wow, nothing to So I they, they actually ban phones in the mother, so there's, there's like pay phones, like a lot like mm-hmm. a lot of kids do sneak in phones, um, you know, but for the most part, so I didn't have a phone. So there's no really way to distract yourself. And it's crazy. It's so crazy to think about um, how, like, if you don't have a phone or like any type of social media, how much free time that you have. And because, and and because you just end up having like whatever extra free time that you have, um, you're like, wait, I'm so bored. What do I do? Might as well just study and just get ahead. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's just nothing else. Whereas like other kids who did sneak in phones. Yeah. I mean, they were watching like just, kind of four seasons of Pretty Little Liars in one week like that. Kind of <laughs> uh, yeah. So you, you you guys have mentioned a little bit about the other students. I'm really curious to know about, like, I mean, because you guys were essentially international students and you were at these international institutes, like with people from all over the world. And like, t- tell us more about like the, the, the interesting people you've met, like on your travels, like how, how similar would you say young Muslims are around the world? And like in, and like how different would you say they are as well at the same time? Do you feel like as Muslims from, from the West, you guys had, um, you know, certain advantages or privileges over, you know, some of your fellow Muslim brothers who are coming from other places or, and at the same time, do you feel like there was, there were certain things that you were probably lacking in that they were probably, um, a little bit better at, uh, just in living and in their day to day? I think in terms of studying wise, the only thing that, um, the locals will have maybe, or not just Arabs in general, because not just Egyptian studying in Egypt, you have Algerians, Tunisians and other Arabs. So I'll say the biggest advantage they have is that they, they, their, na- their native tongue is the Arabic language. Um, that's probably the biggest advantage they have over the Western students. However, what you find the Western students, they have many of them who go to study in Egypt, have studied prior, and they probably, for example, I think in the Arab students in Egypt will only study the curriculum, if that makes sense. Whereas the mm-hmm. Western students will will have a, you know they've come and they've come bef- they've come from Western Western institutes for example critical thinking is encouraged uh, independent thinking is encouraged challenging teachers are encouraged for example I know I'm I'm pretty known for this amongst my class and the the, the locals don't like me for this but I mm-hmm. always challenge my teachers I always ask questions I always say but what's this for I don't really understand this for example oh but how can I share what about this opinion whereas the, the locals won't do that so much. Um, do the teachers mind this, like, or no, like, my, do they welcome your? Yeah, they hundred percent, alhamdulillah, they do welcome it, and they they say it's very important that you have to, you know, you have to make it make sense to you. But I feel like you know, but that's, that's just I don't know whether it's the way of my inquisitive nature, or to, because me being from the West, I'm used to that. Whereas, however, that's not really done so much in the, in amongst the Arab um, amongst the Arab students, for example. Um, another probably point I think I've um, there's a lot of American students there. Um, I've kind of thought there's a big difference between American and UK students in a way. Mm-hmm. In the sense that the American students who go over there, they, I don't know, they have this thing of, again, I don't, I do not want to generalize, but just from my, the ones I've encountered in my experience, they almost have this thing of like, many of those I've met want to get away from America, 
it's almost mm-hmm. like the Americans they, they have issues with where America is in terms of politically or whatever it may be. And like, you know, this is my escape now. I've, I've made my hijra to Egypt. I can be here for 10 years now. And I, I've mm-hmm. heard, you know, several American uh, students say, oh, there's no, there's no real scholars in the West. There's no real, mm-hmm. there, there's no real scholars in the West. But whereas the British students, we have this thing of like, oh, we have a lot of scholars in the West. Then, you know, okay, and we do want to go back to the, to the UK and, and help our communities as well. That's the difference I found between the British and American students. In my experience, so so let's let's ask the Amer- the American yeah, about his uh, yeah <laughs> his his opinions and his take. No, it's so it's, it's so interesting, and like I don't I don't mean this as like this like weird American nationalism, but like in 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 Azadville, it was very different because like Americans were like really really studious, but the British kids <laughs> were like not 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 that at least again not trying to generalize, but in my four to five years there, um, they were kind of. The kids getting most into trouble. They were a lot of them didn't want to come. Um, mm-hmm. and study. They were kind of just sent there because of you know second, third generation Tbilisi's from yeah. especially like Leicester, Bradford, Manchester, certain parts of London had these kind of concentrated kids who came. Um, you know, mostly mostly all kind of Indian Gujarati. Uh, yeah. They were from the background, and yeah. Uh, so I mean, naturally, the next question is: Was it easy to make friends? I mean, personally, in the beginning, I was very open, but then I just, just my, I mean, again, I'm a bit, of a, I'm a bit of a maverick in my opinions and, and the way I view things. So, and I find mm-hmm. that sometimes that can be a bit uh, much for a lot of students. So I kind of retreat my, I'm, I keep myself to myself a lot now. I've had, a, I've had quite intense discussions and disagreements with a lot of people and it, it didn't end so well. So we can, keep, I mean, it's it's kind of like, hello, bye, salamu alaikum. I do have, alhamdulillah, I have a group of friends that are, uh, that I've known from the UK and they're also out there with me. So Mustafa Briggs, for example, and other people. So I see them regularly. As for the other students, it's just when I, when I keep it to a minimum personally. What about you, Molana? Yeah, so I, 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 I kind of came in and like, this is again, just coming, coming from like a privileged American Muslim background. And I had uh, laughably so a very kind of cliche diaspora upbringing where like, I read Harry Potter growing up. I watched Star Wars, <laughs> you know, you know, like we just read, you know, a series of unfortunate events and Aragon and stuff like that. And then when I came to Mothersa and like played Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts, and then when I came <laughs> to Mothersa, um, a lot of those kids really interestingly didn't not have those backgrounds, even from America and England, uh, ex- yeah. except for the only, I only knew one kid who did out of, out of like 70 British kids and 70 American kids. Uh, there's only one kid who did. His, uh, he was from New York. Um, he actually did not choose to come to mother. So his dad forced him. And so he was, he was kind of like the only one who had, and, and obviously like when you travel, you want to meet different people, but when you're so far away from home for so long, you just need mm-hmm. someone who has just like a basic shared experience with you growing up. At least, yeah. at least for me, like, like, like that's how it was. Like, like he just, me and him just had like kind of like a similar upbringing where we like read the same things, watched the same things, had similar groups of friends back home so we could share off that. And that a lot of these other kids kind of just grew up in a mother's house. And so they had never seen, so even if they were from England or from America, they had no mm-hmm. kind of understanding of Americana or, or British culture. I, to- I totally there. agree with that, Smiley. Totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah. So you yeah, guys yeah. essentially just gravitated towards basically like-minded people because it was yeah. really difficult for you to sort of connect uh, because of how different the cultures were, like uh, on, in your you know travels yeah, and your I education experiences. It's, it's, as 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 Sheikh Saleh said, not, not just the culture for just culture, it'll be literally like cultural cues. So like yeah. things that you can, yeah, yeah. Quote, you know, you can kind of share the same sense of humor. You might have watched the same things growing up. So you can relate on that level. So it's not just purely a level where you're relating on like what you're studying. It's, it's other than that. 
And I feel that's very yeah, important yeah. to have. Yeah, and like especially because South Africans, um, it, you know, like there definitely was that cultural disconnect because they were so in tabligh or so yeah. in 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 deen that they they just had no understanding of like what it meant to come from this like a Western country. I mean, even though some parts of South Africa are Western, but it just it's 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 different, right? Like an American Muslim and the British Muslim um, are gonna are even even between themselves are gonna have a different. Or even like a California Muslim and a New York Muslim, or even like you know, like a, like a Bradford and a, and a, and a, and a Manchester Muslim. So yeah. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. especially for when sure. you're there, especially when you're there, like you're not looking for difference. Like you're far away from home. You're going home once a year, maybe yeah. back twice. <laughs> like, like you, you need someone or something where constantly like you can be like, okay, like, like I'm grounded. Um, I'm rooted. I, you know, otherwise, otherwise I feel like I've seen kids kind of lose them, lose themselves because you know, there's, you know, like you're not really talking to home. You're not, you're not seeing close friends and close family. And it's not, like like you're meant at a young age to be around your family to be around your community so when you're in mothers right. like you need yeah you you just as as chef mamadou says so did you guys ever like feel homesick oh yeah oh con i, I don't i remember i don't remember a single day where i didn't feel homesick throughout the four years every single day was either like how many days do i have left to go home and if you look yeah. at my all my textbooks either from like mukhtasar al-quduri from little ida to on the theater to my bukhari it's just yeah it's just like 160 days left 120 days left 180 days left <laughs> wow subhanallah so, so you really yeah. need to have the passion to you know to study like i can only imagine for you've mentioned a few times that there there's some people who've been pressured and forced into it for them it must have been really really difficult because um it sounds like you really need to want this because of how tough it sounds yeah 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 no and like i'm i'm sure sheikh mamadou can can speak for that too but... no no 100% i mean the thing is you just miss you Naturally, coming from the West, again, it's like Sheikh Saleh said, many kids, for example, their madrasa system is all they know. So for them, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's fine. For someone who's like, you know, going to Western Institute, I, I went to university, I've had so much freedom, had, I'm so used to, you have your routine, you have your habits. Going to a country like Egypt where things are not going to be on time, you can't get, you can't get things readily available. You're gonna, you're not, and as well, me being who I am, I can't cook. I've been somewhat spoiled my life. So, you know, mm-hmm. learning how to cook, you know, learning how to manage a household, learning how, you know, it's not just the rent that you pay, it's the bills that you pay as well. So, you know, my, also I have my own flat in Egypt, so it's a bit different. The setup is a bit different. So you definitely miss home, definitely miss, you know, your parents cooking and stuff like that. Just to add to that, or even just like the stuff that's going on at home, right? Like random cousins and uncles and aunts weddings. So when you call your parents, you're like, oh yeah, someone just got married. And you're like, oh, like I had to stand outside today because I came late to class. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard yeah. to relate, I suppose. Yeah, and then and then you're just like, why? And then and then you see, and then you hear about your friends who are like, you know, just starting college and like, like all like all that fun of being a freshman in college, and then you know, like you're in mother's cell where you're like being raided in your room because you know, like someone in your room did something bad. So it's just it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's like it's it's like the contrast amplifies like the, the homesickness. Hundred percent. Wow. Of, of your friends back home. So, so if you don't have those friends in the first place, it's fine because that's the normative. But when you do, then you have to compare it to. Then it just deepens, um, you know the 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 feeling of absence in your in your mind in your mind and your body. Wow. So I mean, you've you've mentioned like now as we draw to to an end, I, I, I want to ask like you guys have now traveled to study. You've studied. You've experienced all the things that you need to experience: the good, the bad. Now that you've gotten back home and, and you know you're, you're so homesick, you you got back home, you're excited. Like, 
how do you how different do you feel like do you feel like you've changed in any way do you do you see your hometowns and your homelands like in a different perspective was it tough to readjust and then like how how has people's reactions been towards you like oh you know so and so is going to travel to study the dean like what what have your friends thought of you like um, do you feel like you're being treated differently alhamdulillah my friends are extremely supportive man and this, i mean I'm, my studies haven't finished anyway i'm even um, as we speak now I'm currently trapped in the UK because of coronavirus, but I'll be going back to Egypt when <laughs> I can. But honestly, alhamdulillah, my friends have been really supportive. I mean, they, they, we have something to build. They kind of see it like, you know, they kind of see what they can't do in me, if that makes sense. So they, some of them mm-hmm. have, you know, university lives or marriage, whatever it may be, commitments in the UK, but they still have a love for Islam. So they kind of feel like I'm fulfilling that aspect for them. So they know that when I come back, I'm going to teach them, inshallah, teach their kids, uh, teach their family members. We can set up an institute in the UK. That's one of the goals. So alhamdulillah, I don't think I've been treated differently. If anything, I mean, there is probably more of a level of respect. I mean, I feel like it's, it's also interesting as well. Any, any question, Islamic question, you're the first point of call now. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's changed. But then that's, that's understandable. That's what, that's what I'm here for. Do you see like, but do you see the UK in like in a new in your new light, having spent so much time in Egypt? Whenever you go back, like, do you is there anything that you appreciate more? Is there anything that you then, f- f- like, funnily enough, miss about Egypt, or do you see something about the UK that you saw one way, and then when you went to Egypt to study and you came back, was there anything like, oh, you know, I probably had this opinion about, um, uh, you know, the Dean in the UK or the Muslim community in the UK, but now that I've been in Egypt, I kind of see things in a bit more nuanced light, or anything yeah, like that I, def- I feel like it's mm, not so much seeing things differently as as such but definitely more of i think my approach will be will be more nuanced now my approach will be you know uh, naturally when you're when you're young you're very you know you're, you're very impressionable first and foremost but you're very like you got a lot of fire in your belly so when i was mm-hmm. when i was 21 i was oh, sorry 18 17 i just became maliki my thing was like I, i've got to make the world maliki now that's my that's my goal now yes you know? <laughs> i'm gonna make the world maliki yeah, so yeah. i you know, so I want to yeah. go, I'm going to, everyone I speak to, I'm making Maliki, I'm going to, just Maliki myself, I would go to a mosque where they haven't seen um, no one in their life pray Saddle, uh, praying with hands by your side, except for the Shia, and I'm going to go to that mosque and make sure I pray Saddle, and you know, I'm going to, and mm-hmm. if I need people in Salah, I'm going to do only one Salah, I'm not tell them, yeah, so I was very, you know, <laughs> I was very extreme, <laughs> I was very extreme in my practice, but going to Egypt now and come back, you know, I feel like, first of all, these things are not that deep, you know, like this, the differences of opinion in, in this Ummah are mercy, alhamdulillah. And these are all valid opinions. These are all valid opinions in, in some school or, or another. So I kind of, that coming back to the UK with that has been kind of, you know, I don't know, it's kind of softened my heart towards people in a way. Well, that's brilliant to know. Uh, what about what about your experience, um, Maulana Saleh? How was it like going back to um, San Francisco and the Bay Area after being in South Africa? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just because like there wasn't as much Dean here, I was always a little bit more hesitant. And um, because everyone is so, you know, embedded in like this like university experience, I was I was a little bit more hesitant to talk about mother. So because, you know, the question when everyone's like, oh, like, what do you do? And then I'm like, oh, I'm a Milana. Like in the beginning, that was kind of um, it, it, it's tough because of like the secular way of, of, of reframing knowledge and such. So mm-hmm. um there there was that but I, th- I think for me like i just ended up loving freeman a lot more because i just remember how much time i spent in in class in south africa just thinking about freeman you know so you you appreciated home more a bit more yeah 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 so um i want to know where else in the world would you guys be interested in studying and why uh personally i want i'd love to go to uh what is maybe Malana Saleh is that another one is that the one mm yeah, yeah. Nazatul Ulama. 
that to Ola, man. That's the one because I've heard, I've heard, I just heard great things about it. I've heard their approach is quite open minded and they have a particular focus in hadith. And a lot of the scholars who have, of people, even the students who study there, are very strong as well. So that's something so, I would love to consider. So this institute is in India, right? Um, it's 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 somewhere yeah. in um, I think northern India. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What 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 about you, um, Ustad Saleh? Where else would you be keen on you know, you know studying? Um, I would say I would say probably somewhere in India too, um, like Hyderabad or Delhi, and focus on something that I would not be able to get you know in South Africa, say, uh, you know, like either Hadith or or, or Tafsir or even um, just just like Persian, you know, kind of like the Persian tradition um, within. Hadith All right. And, so, you feel yeah. like you feel like the Persian tradition is is preserved in in India. It, it it definitely is more than South Africa. So it's if if you're a local native and you go to a mother so like Deoband and such, you still do two to three years Persian. Um, oh wow! Okay, mashallah. Yeah. So it's it's still there. So a lot of the old teachers still read and write Persian, and um, engaging with like Hanafi texts. You know, for six seven hundred years that were written in Farsi, um, you're really going to only engage that in India and Pakistan. Not even so much in Pakistan, more in India. Right. So my final question: um, What did you guys wish you knew before you set off uh, on your travels to study the Dean? And then, what advice would you then give to potential students of sacred knowledge who want to go on this incredible journey to study the Dean? What What would you say to them? Do as much as you can bef- in the UK before you go abroad. Mm. So in the sense that like learn Arabic before it will help you. If you can, even you can, you can learn Arabic in the UK, learn all your basic sciences beforehand before going to um before going abroad. That's my first that's my a strong advice. And second of all, go with a clear plan of what you want to do. If you just I mean, I get people saying to me now, Oh, I wanna study um I wanna perfect my ibadah, so I'm studying Nahu. I'm like, mm-hmm. there's no correlation here. I'm studying Arabic grammar. Like, no, what do, what is it you want to do? What's your clear plan? If you want to become a scholar, then you do the full route of the scholarship and you get and you get certification. If you just want to study Arabic, then just study Arabic. If you want to study just fiqh, then find a fiqh teacher. Uh, you don't have to go to a whole institute to study like one of these sciences unless you want to become a full scholar and start teaching. Um, and another thing I'd say, personally, my, what I wish I knew, um, that your expectations of the institute you're going to find more knowledge outside the institute than you are inside the institute. That's, that's a very important point. People don't, people probably don't realize that what you're going to, the, the, what you're going to find is that, um, a lot of the institutes in the Muslim one, sorry, mm-hmm. in the Arab one in particular, they've been institutionalized. And by that, I mean, they've become universities. So like, you're going to have, you're going to have a couple chapters from every book in a few sciences over the four years. And that's not the way we've been traditionally handed knowledge. So that's why I really do commend the Darus Nizami system is that it's very thorough and very, you might not uh, uh, probably agree with maybe people who graduate from them, but however, the Darus Nizami system is very thorough and you go through a lot of depth and they, you know, you, they do prepare you to, like you can come out of Darus Nizami system and be very strong in certain, in certain, um, in certain topics. Whereas the Asari system or the Karawini system or the Zaytuna system, you won't be as strong if you finish just the bachelor's degree. You have to do the masters, and and you have, and you have to supplement your learning because none of throughout the four years you don't even finish one book cover to cover in the university. Oh, subhanallah! Whereas outside you will do. Whereas, like for example, you find private chef, you might say, "I want to study this book in, in, in I want to study the Muhammad Malik because I'm cover to cover." You'll find a teacher who's be excellent and will teach almost for free, probably, but you won't find it in the university. Okay, okay. What about um? What about Ustad Saleh? Um, yeah, I mean, I have I have a couple of things. Those those are all brilliant points. Thank you, um, Sheikh Mamadou. But um, 
I would say the first thing is that when you go to Madrasa, don't be concerned about, hey, uh, I have to better my English. Because that, I, I, I don't know if you experienced that with Western students in, in Azhar, but I know that that was definitely a thing in Azadville where a lot of kids that came to Madrasa, now they were like, oh, I need to better my English. I'm like, man, you came to the wrong place to do that. Like, this is not like, like, <laughs> like, you, like you should have done that like before. So don't like when you come to Madrasa, focus on Arabic, focus on the languages being taught there. That, that curriculum has been, yep. at least for the Darsan Nizami, it's been validated by centuries and centuries. And even before Darsan Nizami became Darsan Nizami, these, these texts were taught. You know, like Quduri, Hidayah, mm-hmm. um, just the Hasid, that's like, so, so like this stuff has been validated by thousands and thousands of scholars across centuries. So there's been great care and concerns to focus on those texts. Unfortunately, there's like a lot of um, students in the Madrasa who go, and I guess rightfully so, right? They understand that like the these scholars don't have the same um, mic that Sheikh Hamza and Hamza does, and they and they think it's because of the fact that that they have good English. Sure, that's like one. Sure, that's like one part of it, right? But like if you come with good English and you don't have a deep grasp of the Deen of the Madhab that you're following, then like why should that matter? That means that like you kind of just wasted your time, and you could have just honestly just done that at a, at a university where you bettered your English and you gained like a superficial grasp of Islam. So I would say, right. I would say I would say that's the first thing. The second thing is that um. Uh, for those traveling to Darsan Nizami courses, um, South Africa, India, Pakistan, England, um, they, for whatever reason, we do a poor job with history. And mm-hmm. so all, all we know, all the, if you ask, if you ask the average 90, 95% of the Obani graduates, all they know is, is the first century, which is obviously critical and the most critical century. And then they know the history of the Obani. That's it. <laughs> so, so 14 centuries of Islam, you know, you know, the West African Muslims, you know, Mansa Musa, the you know, North Africa, the Ottomans, the Mamluks, the Mughals, all all yeah. of that is entirely erased, even though all these all these empires were traditionally Sunni kind of followed fiqh, you know, you know, had had a deep and rich relationship with fiqh, right? I mean the reason why the Maniki Madhab is so entrenched in West Africa is because of, you know, um these historical processes. Right. Right. And so and and so because of that and, and because I think they were the mothers of graduates are so kind of removed from historical study, um they don't necessarily have that like um hekma that that comes with engaging um with the past right so 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 now it's about okay just copy pasting what i know from the text hey like you can't actually like you should not be doing that right like there's like we're not we're we're not a western institution where we only go by the text like we also go by living examples of course the prophet but as but as well as his his his, his scholars both dead and alive right that's um yeah. that's some excellent advice from both you guys, mashallah. And um yeah, we pray that our future students um you know take this into consideration. And uh, I, I I make dua for uh, Mamudu as well, inshallah, that he yeah, completes his studies and um also for yeah for for uh, Sheikh Saleh for you know any future studies that he embarks on. And um thanks so much, guys, for um joining us on this really enlightening uh, episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you, bro. Thanks for listening. Key details we mentioned are found in our show notes. Find us on social media as Sacred Footsteps and on Twitter as S Footsteps.